Children reported seeing an animal that none recognized, this large, seven-foot-tall, hairy thing that left big tracks. It was very disturbing, you know, it had a grinning expression, and it beckoned to the children. Unearthly cries were heard in the night. Many of the fur traders used the word demon. They thought a demon, or even the devil himself, had come to their little corner of the world, had emerged from the deep, dark woods that surrounded their fur trade post. That's Adam Schultz, RCGS Explorer-in-Residence and author of a new book, The Whisper on the Night Wind, a wilderness ghost story as we launch into autumn and towards Halloween. Adam is our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm David McGuffin. Welcome back. As the music suggests, we're going on a journey into the macabre today, to a lonely corner of Labrador, up roaring rivers, into dark spruce forests, and then into the mist-shrouded Mealy Mountains. Leading us on that journey is our old friend, Adam Schultz. Adam was intrigued by a century-old legend of a strange, demon-like creature that haunted the remote fur posts of that part of Labrador. So, in typical Schultzian fashion, last September, he loaded his canoe onto his car and headed out to investigate firsthand what he describes as the strange and scary things that lurk in the darkness beyond the flicker of firelight. The resulting story is a fantastic, fun, and chilling tale. The Whisper on the Night Wind is a worthy successor to his many best-selling wilderness adventure books, Alone Against the North, Beyond the Trees, and A History of Canada in Ten Maps. Adam Schultz, welcome to the Explore podcast. Welcome back, I should say. Oh, for having me back. Yeah, so the new book, Whispers on the Night Wind, which is very appropriately a ghost story as we head into October and head towards Halloween. It's set in Labrador, and it's an another one of your wildlife adventures heading into the wilds. It's centered around this legend of what's called the Traverspin Gorilla or the Traverspin Beast in this very rural part of Labrador. Can you tell us a bit about how you came across this legend? Because it's not certainly not something I'd ever heard of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've always loved uh, spooky things, tales of things that go bump in the night, Halloween, ghost stories, Wendigos, Sasquatch. I've been fascinated by all of that since I was a kid. I remember in the eighth grade, I did a speech for my class on the Loch Ness Monster. So I've always loved this sort of uh, subject matter. And in my fascination for this sort of thing, I've, I've read and researched and traveled all across Canada to the far corners of Canada. So Sasquatch stories and Wendigo stories and Lumberjack ghost stories have been, I've breathed for a long time. In these collections, the one story, though, that has always stayed fresh in my mind that has stood out from all others comes from a, an obscure little corner of Labrador at the foot of the Mealy Mountains. And that's the story that's at the heart of the book, The Whisper on the Night Wind, about this so-called Traverspine Gorilla, which is maybe a misleading name. That was the name that a, an early uh, traveler there, Merrick, gave it. But it's a legend from this little small town on the, on the banks of the Traverspine River in the foothills of the Mealy Mountains about a demon creature, a sort of supernatural creature that haunted that little fur trade post over 100 years ago. And no one could explain it. I mean, strange tracks were found in the woods. Unearthly cries were heard in the night. And children reported seeing a, an animal that none recognized, this large, seven-foot-tall, uh, hairy thing that left big tracks. And it was very disturbing, you know, had a sort of a, a grinning expression. Unlike many other stories and legends of the wilderness, what really caught my eye about this one is that the eyewitness accounts were detailed, and there was no less than five contemporaries 
who made reports of this thing, including uh, one wildlife biologist and three medical doctors. So witness evidence was a little bit stronger than with many other cases where you have one account and it's impossible to cross-reference cross-reference it. So for all these reasons, I found it an incredibly compelling story, a real historical mystery, uh, and one that I felt had to have some basis in the material world. I didn't think it was just a hoax or something made up. And that's why I ended up doing the expedition to the Mealy Mountains to try to unravel the story behind the legend, if I was able to. So this is just over 100 years ago. Is that about right when we're having these sightings? Is that? Yeah, the sightings took place over uh, a period of time. And in, in, like with many legends, pinning down exact dates is difficult. But I'm, as near as we can narrow it down, it was sometime in the first decade of the 20th century. So probably around 1906, 1907 is when the first sightings emerged. And then they continued uh, over a period of years through the 19-teens. And uh, the accounts were being written in the 1920s and 30s by people who still... Uh, remembered the story who had experienced it firsthand. And you mentioned, I mean, sort of cries in the night and children spotting this thing. I mean, what kind of things was it getting up to that were causing so much fear? Or was it just its presence itself? Well, I think the presence itself was spooky. Many of the uh, the fur traders used the word demon, uh, that they thought a demon or even the devil himself had come to their little corner of the world, had emerged from the deep, dark woods that surrounded their fur trade post. So they were they were obviously alarmed by it. They didn't see it as something that was benign in any way. And uh, the one of the words they used was that it beckoned to the children, uh, that when the children, the little children were out playing on the edge of a grassy clearing surrounded by deep, dark woods, uh, that's when this thing would emerge. And, you know, it, it sometimes was described as moving on all fours. Other times it stood erect on its hind legs and it beckoned to the children, which is a sort of disturbing detail. But yeah, very much all of the accounts agree on one thing, which is whatever this thing was, it, it was not benign. It was something frightening, something that had emerged from the dark woods. There are more details in the accounts about it coming at night, that it haunted the place by night, that after an, an initial sighting during the day, thereafter avoided the day and would come at night. Many of the accounts describe it having encounters with the sled dogs that every trapping family kept, that it would sometimes uh, drive the dogs into the river. And uh, the wildlife biologist, a guy by the name of Bruce Wright, he said that it cleaned up seal bones too big for the dogs. And what can eat a seal bone is really quite big. So something very strong uh, that could bite through seal bones. And uh, there's even an account of it uh, sort of attacking a house in the night and making the, beam, the beams of this log cabin tremble. So a very large and uh, apparently menacing creature, whatever it was. So if you have then men of science like these doctors and wildlife biologists, what, I mean, they would clearly be trying to bring the world we know into this. And what were their conclusions? Yeah, very good question. So there were various hypotheses uh, proposed to sort of explain what was happening there. Uh, the first person to, to really, first outsider to encounter it and write about it uh, was a British explorer. And he actually thought that it was an unknown species, something that was not found in any zoology or wildlife biology textbook. Um, that there was somewhere deep in the unknown wilderness of Labrador, still large mammals unknown to science. And he speculated, well, if you look at the Ice Age, which in terms of geological time wasn't that long ago, the last Ice Age, 10,000 years ago, there was all sorts of strange and enormous creatures that roamed North America, like giant ground sloths and saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and mastodons. And he said, there's no absolute reason why all of these creatures had to go extinct. They had to die off. And if some, if a few still survive, where better than Labrador? So in the world of 1908, it seemed plausible enough to him that there might still be some unaccounted for species unknown to science 
uh, somewhere out in the vastness of the mountains and forests of Labrador in, in northern Canada. Um, other explanations were proposed, though. Uh, Bruce Wright, the wildlife biologist who was there on the scene, he thought that maybe it was uh, uh, an animal within the known animal kingdom, but one that was totally unfamiliar to Labrador and the locals. He thought maybe it was a polar bear or a grizzly bear, like an animal that's known from elsewhere in Canada, like the west or the far north, but wasn't necessarily known in that area of, of the Mealy Mountains, um, where there was only black bears conventionally. So if there was a much larger and unfamiliar bear, he thought maybe that could explain it. And he saw that there was some overlap in terms of the eyewitness descriptions with the physical characteristics of a, of a grizzly bear in particular. And there is some evidence that there were grizzly bears uh, once upon a time in Labrador. There aren't any today. Today, they're only found on the, as far as mainland Canada goes, they're only found west of Hudson Bay. Uh, but there is some archaeological evidence that, you know, once uh, there were grizzly bears in what's now Arctic, Quebec, and in Labrador. So that was a, that was a theory he proposed to explain it. And then there were some other theories as well. Um, some of them living in the isolated place they did at a time when access to books and newspapers weren't available. Many of them leaned on the supernatural. They thought, nope, there really is a demon, uh, something from the spirit world, from the nether world, something we can't explain in rational terms that's haunting the woods around here. So that was the explanation that the locals actually favored, that no, there is actually a supernatural demon that has been stalking the woods here. So there are very, very, there are very different uh, explanations, but everyone seemed to agree that there was something real, uh, that it wasn't mm -hmm. a mere imagination. And no one, no one else uh, really thought it was a hoax either. Nobody thought that somebody had ordered up a gorilla suit and put it on and was pranking people. <laughs> and that's something that I discuss in the book. I look at all the evidence and I say, yeah, there's no way that this is a hoax. Um, you know, a hoax might fool one or two people, but uh, these were trappers whose whose livelihood, whose lives depended on their ability to interpret uh, tracks, uh, infer, and things in the woods. And there was no way they would all be fooled. And on top of that, even if you could fool a person, you can't fool a pack of sled dogs. Uh, these keen-nosed huskies uh, would not have cowered in fear from a mere human prankster in a gorilla suit. They would have uh, detected the human scent underneath. So uh, whatever it was had to be something real for it to drive sled dogs into the river and send them into frenzies. So there, there must have been something real is the conclusion that I come to in the book. And I obviously get into more details in the book. I say exactly what I think it is, uh, but I don't want to give it all away. I don't want to spoil the ending. Of the no, 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 no. It's a, it. yeah. no, they do. And it's a, it's a, it's a great read. Um, and, and, and we should add that you having come across these accounts and you spend a lot of time, you you did your PhD in early explorers and, and explorer accounts. And so uh, you've, you've read a lot about um, this nation sort of, or even before it was a nation, but you in typical Adam Schultz fashion, packed your canoe on your car and you took off to Labrador, which also I, I just want to point out, you can, you can drive to Labrador. You know, it's, it's a very accessible place from the rest of Canada. It's not sort of up through Newfoundland and back over again. It's, it, you, you got there in a couple of days, I think, right? Yep. If you want to make a, an adventurous road trip and you have a spare tire <laughs> and an extra, <laughs> extra jerry can or two of gas, uh, it is possible to drive to Labrador. It's one of the loneliest and most isolated highways in, in the world, really. One of the longest stretches of unserviced road in North America. But it winds all the way up from the north shore of Quebec through the Laurentian Mountains and through the Boreal Forest and into Labrador. That's the there's two different names for it, but the Trans-Labrador Highway cuts across Labrador. So it's a pretty lonely and isolated place. There's absolutely no cell reception whatsoever. 
And, uh, but that's how we, so when I decided to go investigate, you know, I figured I've been researching this legend in the archives. I've been reading firsthand diaries and letters, uh, but there's only so much you can get out of old records and letters. Eventually I decided I had to go there for myself and set off into the wilderness, see if I could find the ruins of this place and find any, any clues to unravel this mystery. And I decided with a friend of mine, a guy named Zach, that we would load up our car and drive there from Ontario and set off into the wilderness with our canoes and our backpacks to, to investigate the legend, uh, which is yeah. what we Can did. I just, uh, so. We should say that Zach is an aspiring UFC fighter, so you, you brought a good companion for some, like a trip like this. <laughs> yes, he's a, he's a mixed martial arts fighter. He fights professionally in Ontario. He's not the highest level UFC, but he's a very, very athletic guy with a lot of stamina, which is what you need in those kind of journeys if you're heading off into the mountains on foot, doing a lot of bushwhacking in a place where there's no paths or trails. So... Right. Uh, he and, he acquitted himself quite well on that expedition, and possibly confronting a seven foot creature. Yes, that's ex- that was my, my thoughts exactly. He was a good companion to have in that situation. You have to be prepared for any eventuality. So you've driven up the one of the most inaccessible or one of the loneliest roads in the world, um, and then get in your canoe and you you paddle to where this initial sighting was. This it, it's actually a ghost town now. Is that right? Yep, uh, the settlement of Traverse Pine. Uh, was abandoned in the early 20th century. So there's all very little trace of it left today. It's uh, overgrown in the forest. We did find a few ruins of um, the settlement, but there's not a whole lot there. Um, so that's where we began our, our expedition. We paddled there across what's now the Churchill River, uh, and we camped there, and we we looked around for any clues. You know, we just tried to to recreate what had happened 100 years ago to to bring those diaries and letters, which I quote from in the book, uh, to life to set the scene and uh, we spent the night there and then from there we we plunged deeper into the wilderness because i wanted to be open to any possibilities and not look at this from a closed mind so the way i was reasoning was well if such a creature ever did exist it probably would have decamped from that area uh, because it's now too close to the modern town of happy valley goose bay and disappeared deep into the wilderness into the mountains so we would go off into the mountains and see what we could see uh, keeping an open mind and inv- investigating all possibilities, which is what we did. So you head into the Mealy Mountains, which, as you mentioned in the book, are traditionally regarded as something of a haunted region by by the First Nations in the area. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I love legends. And uh, all over the world, we have mountain ranges that are associated with all kinds of dark legends. Like I compare them to the Carpathian Mountains in Eastern Europe. But as far as mountain ranges go in North America, we have many um, but there's something about the Mealies that makes them in, in traditional indigenous lore uh, a very special place where there were many indigenous legends of strange things that happened in the Mealy Mountains, you know, strange sightings in the night sky. Uh, many of the traditional place names for certain mountains or caves in the Mealies re- reflect these beliefs that there was monsters there and uh, strange creatures that inhabited the Mealy Mountains. So all of this just sort of whetted my ap- appetite and added to my fascination. And it's something that I go into depth in the book. Uh, the different indigenous legends, and if they shed any light at all on what happened at Traverse Pine and possibly provide an explanation for the mystery. Uh, so yeah, very much it's a it's a land of, of legends and lore, um, which is just how I like my mountains. So uh, it was all part of the appeal to set off on this expedition into those mountains. Hi, I just want to take a short break to plug our sister publication, Canadian Geographic Magazine. It is one of this country's great magazines. I subscribe, and I love it both for the articles and the photography, which is always stunning. The September-October edition is out now on newsstands. It includes a story by Adam Schultz about the inspiration for his new book, which we're talking about here. 
It also boasts a cover feature by Alana Mitchell exploring the fate of endangered caribou herds across the country. There's also the always popular annual geography quiz. There's a map insert. Don't you love maps? I do. And a collection of reviews of new fall books. And there's an excerpt from Thompson Highway's forthcoming novel. It's only $28.50 for a year or $55 for two years. That gets you both the print magazine and digital access. And subscribers become members of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. A nice bonus. So go to cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe. It takes just a minute to sign up. And now back to our podcast. Tell us more about those First Nations or Indigenous legends. And the, the Wendigo is obviously one that we hear right across Canada going back in First Nations war. Tell us about the Wendigo. Yeah, so the Wendigo is maybe the most uh, famous, the most well-known of, of Indigenous monster legends. And there's many variations of it because it is, as you alluded to, a very widespread legend. You can find uh, traditional tales of the Wendigo and as well as in the, the accounts of fur traders um, spread out everywhere from Labrador to the Yukon. Um, I mean, across an immense area covering many thousands of kilometers, but essentially anywhere where you have boreal forest or subarctic forest, uh, that's where you had uh, Wendigo legends. And traditionally, they came from anyone within the, the Agonkian language family, which is the largest language family in Canada. It's a diverse group uh, that includes many different nations and smaller tribes. Uh, and the Wendigo legend has many different regional variants, but it's remarkably consistent overall across this immense territory. Um, it tends to come in two different forms, but they're both connected with some degree of cannibalism. Uh, some said that the Wendigo was an evil spirit uh, that lurked deep in the dark woods, and especially in winter could take possession of a person's mind and turn them into a cannibal. Uh, but others, uh, many others, indigenous elders said that, you know, Wendigos actually had a physical presence of their own. It wasn't only an evil spirit, but they were actually beings that lived out in the wilderness and they were giants that stalked the wilderness and they themselves would uh, capture and devour humans. So there were sort of these dual aspects of the legends and uh, there was never uniformity. There was no one spread or correct version. Um, and there were actually disputes. Some indigenous elders uh, would tell you that uh, all Wendigos were originally human, but as they became possessed by the evil spirit and they got more and more debased, uh, they lost their humanity and gradually degenerated into these monsters. Others say that the monsters always existed and it's not known uh, where they came from, that they will just always be cloaked in, in mystery. Um, so the Wendigo legend being so well known and so well attested in the historical record, the earliest written accounts of, the, of Wendigos date back almost 400 years uh, to the French explorers in, in New France, the Jesuits, they made records of them. And there are hundreds of accounts written by all different uh, explorers and fur traders throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th, and early 20th centuries. Um, so the record is very rich, and there's a lot to go on there. So naturally, with my background uh, in my PhD, where I would actually studied Wendigo legends, I thought, well, surely somebody at Traverse Pine 100 years ago must have been aware of Wendigos. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't this be the logical um, explanation. Did somebody attribute what had happened at Traverse Pine to a Wendigo? Uh, but oddly enough, no, nobody, no one did. It was never suggested that this had any connection to Wendigos. That just was not on the radar. And uh, even though they probably were aware of Wendigo legends, they did not think whatever showed up there uh, had any connection to Wendigos. And there were some striking differences. I mean, there was some overlap, but there were some really unique and strange uh, aspects of what happened at Traverse Pine, one of which is that the tracks were described as a cloven hoof. 
Right. And cloven hoofs doesn't really have anything to do with Wendigos. That's normally what we think of when we think of the Judeo-Christian tradition of the devil. Right. Um, like, you know, cloven hoof tracks. That's kind of creepy. Uh, right. So they were not really, they were leaning the other direction that this is some sort of demon. But that right. is something that I explore in depth uh, in the book, The Whisper on the Night Wind. Yeah, as you point out, our European ancestors certainly had their own legends of things that were very much like Wendigos, didn't they? And and this is, seems to be what was being leaned on here. Yes, I mean it's fascinating how if you look at mythology over the world, all over the world, as Carl Jung pointed out a hundred years ago, there's a lot of what he called mythological archetypes, uh, different legends from different cultures scattered all across the globe that seem to have. Mm a lot in common. And I, I do compare a little bit in the book. I don't go into too much detail, but I say, yeah, there's a lot of similarities to these Wendigo legends to uh, legends of vampires traditionally from Eastern mm-hmm. Europe and, and legends of werewolves. So there's the aspect yeah. of cannibalism, the transformation, uh, yeah. a lot of, a lot of similar features. And it's possible that what happened in Labrador was a local variant, or it may have been, it may have been um, linked to even more obscure legends uh, that come from Labrador and that I get into in the book. But uh, that's partly why I was drawn to it, though, is because it is, it is, it does stand out in the historical record as being unique, mm-hmm. as quite different than many of the other cases. And anyone who's read any of my books knows that I, I love these kind of legends because I tend to find a way to work them into every book I've written. Uh, Alone Against the North, Beyond the Trees, the History Canon, Ten Maps, they all sort of dwell on Windigo and Sasquatch and different legends. So this one is a little bit different. It was, you know, it's from... It's it's unique, mm-hmm. and I find one of the most uh, chilling and compelling of stories. There's just something about it uh, where you know you think there's really there's really something going on here, and it's different, and uh, it feels real. I mean, it reaches to us across the ages from a century ago, and it I can't help but read these accounts, these eyewitness accounts, uh, without having a chill down my spine. It's the kind of thing that's perfect for reading around a campfire in the woods on your next camping trip. So for all these reasons, I felt like I had to. I had to really go there and investigate it and try to find out what was behind this mystery. Describe the mountains, the Mealy Mountains. What were, what were they like? They are one of the most ancient mountain ranges on the earth. I mean, they were hundreds and hundreds of millions of years old. Uh, they were already ancient when the Rockies were brand new. Um, so they're not a particularly high mountain range, uh, but they, have, uh, they make up for, for their great antiquity because they've been weathered by countless eons of storms and just grind it down so they're kind of rounded mountains rather than really uh, sharp peaks and uh, the lower slopes are very very densely forested like some of the most uh, impenetrable forest i've ever seen in my life and where hiking one kilometer feels more like hiking 20 just cloaked in very dense uh, spruce and balsam fir uh, forest and a lot of deadfall where trees have toppled over because of the strong winds and all of those fallen trees with their sharp branches makes travel uh, extremely difficult. Like I've done a lot of expeditions all over Canada from the Arctic to British Columbia uh, to the boreal forest. And I don't think I've ever had more difficulty moving than I have in, in Labrador on the slopes of the Mealy Mountains where every, every, uh, every inch is a struggle. Like my clothing was torn to, to rags, to shreds on all this deadfall. And then the on the upper sl- uh, slopes of the Mealy Mountains, it's usually above the tree pond, uh, above the tree line, and you have uh, sort of alpine conditions where the flora is much more like what you would see on the Arctic tundra, uh, where very harsh conditions because of the cold and the wind, and you have just a few uh, ground hugging plants, uh, things like lingonberries and uh, Arctic blueberries, uh, dwarf Labrador tea, just little small plants that can grow. 
um, close to the surface of the ground. And then in the more sheltered uh, nooks and gullies, you have like alpine spruce, which can be very old, but doesn't get much more than three or four feet tall. Uh, so they they are very, I, I use the word be, bewitching. Um, there's a bewitching air to those mountains. I think they're very, uh, very fascinating and picturesque. And there are rivers that carve through them, um, just, you know, raging white water. We tried to navigate up one as far as we could go. And then when it just became a fury of, of rapids and white water, we, we abandoned our canoe and continued on foot uh, through the forest into the mountains. I mean, it sounds like a great setting for a ghost story. Did it feel spooky at times? A little bit at night when the sun went down. Uh, I mean, I like to think that I'm, you know, very rational, the man of science. And I've spent literally hundreds and hundreds of nights sleeping in the wilderness, much of it alone. But uh, there's definitely, there was definitely a few occasions on that expedition uh, where we found ourselves just sort of subconsciously looking over our shoulder or did you hear something? Or there were definitely some very eerie, spooky and unaccounted moments on this journey. Uh, I had a bug net because, you know, even in September, the black flies can be kind of bad. And I took it off and I set it down and it vanished. (laughs) And I'm like, well, it must be because I'm dehydrated. I'll find it in the morning. But there was no sign of it. Just, uh, I don't know, maybe it blended in with the Labrador tea and the sphagnum moss, but it disappeared. Uh, My friend Zach, he had a a hunting knife on his belt. It also vanished. And it made us think about some of the legends about some of the things that live in the Mealy Mountains. Um, Now, we were probably dehydrated. We were exhausted. We did a lot of bushwhacking. So people may propose other explanations, but there were definitely times in there where, as I said, we found ourselves subconsciously looking over our shoulder. There were a lot of tracks. We found many bear tracks. Um, and there were, as I, as I allude to in the title of the book, um, at night when the wind would, would blow through the trees and they would sort of moan as they would sway back and forth, the whisper on the night wind. Um, so yes, absolutely. There was a certain spooky ambiance, um, to that place that I found, uh, you know, is a little, little bit, a little bit creepy and eerie as I, as I said, yes. There's obviously a, a desire to find a rational explanation for all this, but I think of people like say Dan Longboat at Trent, uh, first nations elders who, who say, you know, there is a spiritual aspect to our wild places and we've cut ourselves off for them and we've lost contact with that spirit. And I'm just wondering, I mean, how much do you feel that? How much do you believe that? How much does that play into you when you travel? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a hundred percent the forest is my cathedral and there is 100% a spiritual aspect to the wilderness, which I think is partly why it is absolutely critical, essential that we save vast wilderness areas because in order to preserve that sense of awe, uh, of that spiritual sense, we really need the vastness. The vastness is crucial to it. You just don't get it out of a little tiny park or somewhere that's been hacked up with interpretive signs and trails and a huge parking lot and a visitor center. You fundamentally change the aspect of the place when you do that. So you need that vastness. And when you have the vastness, to me, that is when you really feel it, um, that undefinable quality. Um, that spiritual sense that this is a very awe-inspiring place where who knows anything is possible. Um, who's to say what might not be out there um, in some deep dark corner of the woods or on the far side of the mountain. And in, in the end of the book, I, I actually do reflect on these themes and talk a little bit about why I think uh, this is very real and very important and something that we have to think about um, in terms of our future and, and saving these kind of vast wild places. It's something that I, I think is uh, runs through the theme of all of my books that I've written, um, this sense of 
of awe that comes with true wilderness. And I do worry a little bit that it's something we're losing bit by bit, uh, year after year, as we continue to hack up and parcel more and more of the natural places on the planet. And every year, the world gets a little less wild, a little more subtle, a little more developed. So I think that in doing so, yeah, we definitely are losing something. And as I allude to in the book, um, it's a way of, I think, staying connected to our own human heritage is, is maintaining and preserving these wild places because there's definitely a power there um, that, that's very real. And I want to make sure that that's something we don't lose uh, going forward. Before I let you go, um, I just wanted to, I, I encourage everyone to follow you on Instagram because you have a really amazing feed of your travels all around the world. And you've just recreated or retraced the steps of uh, an early uh, European explorer, David Thompson, through the Rocky Mountains in 1811. And can you just tell us a bit about that expedition and what, what was behind that and what that experience was like? Well, this was actually, I mean, uh, not, not dissimilar from my book, The Whisper on the Night Wind. I'd always been fascinated by David Thompson. He was a very prolific explorer. In fact, he's credited with mapping more of the Earth's surface than any person in history, not, not only making him not only the greatest cartographer in North American history, but arguably the greatest cartographer in world history. Uh, so he literally wandered across tens of thousands of miles by snowshoes and canoe and on foot. And he wrote uh, prolifically on his expeditions. His notebooks fill over 100 volumes, uh, which are at the Provincial Archives in Ontario. And for the most part, historians who've been interested in David Thompson have marveled at his uh, technical mastery of cartography, his ability to stargaze and work out the math uh, to find precise latitude and longitude, the accuracy of his maps and all of this. Uh, but there was an aspect buried in one of his entries that I found a little more intriguing, which is this legend of a mammoth in the Athabasca Pass, nice. uh, a spooky story from the winter of 1811 when he describes coming across these huge tracks and uh, this mysterious lake, which he had never seen, but his voyageurs said was on top of a low mountain, the Lake of the Mammoth, as they called it. Mm. And I did a lot of research, and a lot has been written. I mean, there are books and books and books written on David Thompson, but it was like, well, why has nobody ever tried to find the Lake of the Mammoth and taken his, his diary entries and tried to match it to the modern landscape? So I was looking at satellite images, trying to figure out, well, mm -hmm. you know, there's this lake on this mountain. Could this match his description? And there's only so much you can get from the satellite. Ultimately, I'm like, I have to go to exactly where he was 200 years ago and sit there and see if I can match what he's actually describing with what I see. So that was the premise of the expedition. Can we retrace his route through the Athabasca Pass in the Rockies, which is the route he took to get over the Rocky Mountains in 1811, and find this lake that he had described but had never actually seen and go there and see if it matches the description um, that he was given, which is what we did. Uh, and I've, I've been posting a little bit on my Facebook and my Instagram about that expedition, some photos and videos, and I'm going to post hopefully an article soon on there all about it. So yes, that was the most recent expedition that I just came back from uh, less than a week ago. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I sort of think of, I lived in the States for a long time, and there was a lot about the legend of Lewis and Clark, and I always would tell them, you know, Alexander Mackenzie and David Thompson were running laps around those guys before they even Absolutely. started out. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I will look forward to that as well. But uh, tell us the name of the book again, Adam. The Whisper on the Night Wind, The True History of a Wilderness Legend is the name of it. It comes out in stores on October 5th, but you can already pre-order it online. Excellent. And as I say, we're into October. It's a, it's a great Halloween spooky fall story. So I encourage everyone to go out and pick that up and read it. Great. Adam Schultz, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, David. 
I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks so much for listening. And I mean that most sincerely. Thanks to you, all of you, we charted at number seven in our Apple podcast category this week, which is quite an achievement. And please, if you haven't already, give Explore a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have time, please also give us a glowing review. The way the algorithm works, it's the best way to make sure this podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. So thank you. And now to Cangeo Soundscapes, where you, the listener, send in audio or video clips of your favorite sounds recorded somewhere in this great land of ours. This one comes to us from Chris O'Brien, who describes himself as being from South Central Etobicoke. He recorded his Cangeo Soundscape, though, at Troy Lake, just north of Kingston, Ontario, in late September. I don't exactly know how a lake can sound like autumn, but this one definitely does. Enjoy. And to complete the autumn feel, here are some Canada geese flying south over my muskrat shack here in the Gatineau Hills in Quebec. And you can take part two and have your favorite sound appear on a future episode of Explore. Tag us with your favorite Canadian sound using the hashtag CanGeoSoundscapes. Tag us on Twitter or Instagram at CanGeo. Or you can go the old-fashioned route and email us, explore at canadiangeographic.ca. And be sure to subscribe to Explore where you listen so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this edition of Explore. Thanks so much again for listening. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. We have Simpson about June the 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that it means our history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160.